906 at WPTF Radio. Tom Kearney here, the Tom Kearney Show. I'm here every night, uh, all week, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10 with a little bit of live and in real time radio. And we're here tonight and we're going to be talking about uh, something that happened 60 years ago. And quite frankly, I'm not quite sure how I want to get into this. But it has a, it's a special meaning for me and many North Carolinians, so I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, 60 years ago, uh, the anniversary would have been late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, that is January 23rd or 24th. Uh, I was a senior in high school and uh, uh, went to bed, put my head down, went to bed, slept the sleep of the virtuous. Everything was just fine. Little did I know that up in the air, about 12 miles from where I was going to sleep, there was a B-52 bomber from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base with two, count them, two nuclear weapons, each one of which had the power of 250 times the Hiroshima bomb. That's 500 times if you add them together. And that plane was having a hard time. It was raining, it was cold, it was snowing. And uh, the plane had uh, problems internally, and uh, we're going to go over those, but I, I want to do this short introduction at the beginning. In any event, it uh, the plane disintegrated, and the bombs were released and fell to earth. And uh, if uh, but for a control switch that, uh, in one case, uh, did not act, and in the other one, they're really not sure what happened, but... Uh, we would have, uh, well, let's just say where I was and everything around there would have been blown away. The man who disarmed the weapon that could be disarmed, the other one disintegrated, said that if it had gone off, it would have created something called the Bay of Carolina or maybe the Bay of Goldsboro, and that is a good bit of the earth there would have been blown away. And that's one of the uh, so-called broken arrows of uh, the United States Air Force, and in fact, uh, one of the books I'll recommend to you is a book by a man named Joel Dobson entitled Goldsboro's Broken Arrow. It's uh, still available as far as I know, and also you can read about this in a, an account by Eric Slosser in a book he put out, published in the 2013, called Command and Control, which was about the number of nuclear accidents that occurred in the United States. So that's what happened, and indeed the next day I woke up and got up and read the newspaper and discovered that the father of a friend of mine had been killed in the in the uh, disintegration of the airplane. He had gotten out, but uh, his helmet was not properly aligned, and he had, uh, had uh, his neck snapped, as I understand it. And by the way, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm going to tell you this story as I understand it. Some of it I learned by being there, and some of it by reading and talking to uh, people who had written some of the accounts of what took place. But anyway, uh, Major Eugene Shelton was killed having gotten out of the plane. There were eight people on the plane, and five of them got out. Uh, actually, six of them got out, but Major Shelton did not survive. The other five who got out, he had two did not get out and did not survive. And, uh, and they, the plane, the, the bombs came to earth, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight because... That's about as close as we can come to a nuclear disaster. Uh, and, and that's what's behind Eric Slosser's book, Command and Control. And Joel Dobson's book about the Goldsboro Broken Arrow is just about the Goldsboro uh, nuclear near disaster. 
but it was the anniversary was 60 years this past Saturday night into Sunday. If we could have landed right on top of it, we would have, but this is January 25th. It's 60 years and one day, and uh, we uh, that's as close as we, we could have gotten. But that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And if any of my fellow Wayne County persons who know about this or anybody does wants to join us tonight and, and serve up part of the account and corroborate or, or correct me if I've gone wrong, I would... Uh, would appreciate it. Our number, as always, if you want to be a part of the program, is 919-860-9783. works out to the call letters WPTF, so you could dial 860-WPTF. And uh, we, we, that's what we're going to be talking about is the anniversary of Goldsboro's Broken Era. And one of the things that Mr. Slosser contends and demonstrates in his book is that a lot of incidents like this happened. The reason we're talking about this one tonight is my certain my, my personal feeling about it, uh, having come that close, and uh, and something that uh, people in North Carolina should know about, especially if they're new to North Carolina. And uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Nine one nine eight six zero nine seven eight three. Uh, John F. Kennedy had taken office as president on January 20th of that year. That is three days before this happened. And uh, it did not start with his uh, rise to the presidency, but the Cold War was going on between the United States and the Soviet Union. And one of the policies that the United States had adopted was to keep, uh, I think there were 12, supposed to be 12 B-52s, uh, in the air at all times, so if we were uh, in the United States uh, victims of an attack, that there would be a plane somewhere that would just have to turn right or turn left and go uh, to to make a return strike to the Soviet Union. There is a little bit of reminiscence of the movie, and it happens to be my favorite movie. It has no connection with, with what's going on. I like the movie because I saw it later. Uh, uh, and uh, there is no connection but the movie Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Love the Bomb. And if you haven't seen that movie, I recommend it to you. But uh, it uh, is a, has to do with the question of preparation for striking back at the Soviet Union in the, uh, in the Cold War. And so in the United States, they were flying B-52s, which is the biggest plane they have. They've been in service since 1955, and although they haven't manufactured any of them in years, they are still using them, and they've used them uh, in, in, in wars right up into the Afghan War. So uh, it's, a, it's a big thing, and they were stationed at that time at Seymour Johnson. I don't believe they are stationed there now, but it was a part of what is called SAC, the Strategic Air Command. And the plane uh, that we are going to be concerned with was flying up and down the East Coast, and if, uh, if the Soviet Union had struck America, it would have turned right or circled around and turned left and, and headed for the Soviet Union. And so that's the plane that we're going to be concerned with tonight. It had uh, taken off with uh, eight people on board. It had actually an extra pilot because they were flying constantly 24 hours, and that was more than uh, the two regular pilots who were on board would, would be able to fly the plane. So a man named Adam Maddox, a young uh, he was a lieutenant, I think. Actually, he was from North Carolina, from Pollocksville, and I think he's only died in the last couple of years. Uh, he was the last one uh, to survive, and he had a particular part that we'll talk about when we talk about the plane uh, disintegrating. 
and there was one person on the plane, and I think he got out, and he was flying just to get some hours in the air, and that is he basically was sitting in a chair uh, just uh, absorbing air time, but, uh, and the rest were the crew of the plane, including navigators and, and two pilots and so on. So you can get the complete story of this from Joel Dobson's Goldsboro's Broken Arrow. We're going to start in by saying where the problems began, right if we take a break here on WPTF. If you want to join us uh, with uh, a contribution to the program, there may be some Wayne County people listening or some people who are a student of uh, things like the Broken Arrows, 919-860-9783. I'm Tom Kearney, and I'll be back right after this. And our telephone number, if you wish to join us, is 919 919- Eight six zero nine seven eight three. We were back in uh, a night in 1961, uh, January 23rd. We just celebrated the 60th anniversary. And because of the Cold War, America's Air Force has a number of B-52s in the air at all times, uh, uh, being ready to strike back uh, if, if they should be struck by the Soviet Union. By the way, the Bay of Pigs, is somewhere going to happen somewhere in here, and the the Cuban Missile Crisis is about a year away. So you can tell this was the time when things, even though they called it a Cold War, well, it was just getting colder. I was going to say it heated out, but let's just say it was getting colder. And the problem is we have an airplane that's taken off from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro, and it is flying up and down the coast. And uh, near Goldsboro, I guess, and, and when it's circling around to go back north, it was being refueled by a refueling airplane, a KC-135 tanker, when the people con- using the boom to refuel the plane uh, told the pilot of the B-52 that there was a leak of, f- of fuel in the right wing and, and uh, that he'd better, he should take some interest in it. And indeed, he did. One of the things that they had done, this was a B-52G, and when you have a letter at the end, it means that it's been modified in some way from its original configuration the plane has been. And one of the things they had done to this plane to make it be able to fly longer in the 24 hours and to be able to fly from perhaps the the United States to the Soviet Union was to install uh, fuel tanks in the wing. And one of the things that's going to turn out is that the wings are not structurally uh, sufficient to to take care of this, and it, it's thought to have been one of the problems causing the plane to disintegrate. But uh, the, the pilot, a man named Major Tullock, notified Seymour Johnson, and they told him uh, since the plane was losing fuel at a fairly rapid rate to go off the coast of North Carolina and dump the fuel, that is, let it, let it run out, and then when it was there was less and less chance of uh, less chance of uh, uh, so much fuel causing uh, a fire or something come back and they would construct a landing pattern for Seymour Johnson. Well, he had hardly gotten off the coast of North Carolina, and that is off the area between Morehead City and Wilmington, when the the fuel increased in its flow away, and and uh, the people at Seymour Johnson ordered. Uh, the the major to turn the plane around and to come back to Seymour Johnson and to make an emergency landing and that's what was going on and this is in the middle of the night now it's raining it's uh, the wind is blowing very strong up high there at uh, 
or they were above 10,000 feet because they came down to 10,000 feet, but they didn't want to come much lower than that because they wanted to come in and uh, down the, the landing gear, and sometimes that would cause sparks, and they, they had sent one of the crew into the back of the plane when they discovered the leak and discovered that it was covered in the back uh, where people normally would not be by fuel, and so they didn't want to create a situation where they might, might ignite, ignite an explosion in the air. And so they were lined up to get to Seymour Johnson to land there. And as they were doing this, the plane uh, became began to disintegrate and became uncontrollable. It had, I guess, been structurally weakened by the alternations or, or something like that. But in any event, the right wing, uh, I think what I read, it rolled up and fell off. And the, the pilot, the chief pilot, ordered the, the people in the plane to eject, and so they did. And uh, but there were three that were left in the plane after the ejection. One of the people that ejected did not do so successfully. That is, Major Shelton got out, but he he uh, uh, had a, a snapback of his neck because his helmet was not on properly, and he was actually killed and descended. Uh, they found his body suspended from a parachute in a tree at the site of the crash. But he did not get out uh, uh, successfully. Uh, four people did get out successfully, and three were left in the plane. Two of them would die in the crash, and, and the aforementioned uh, uh, lieutenant, I believe, Adam Maddox, did something that nobody else has ever done, and that is when the pilot and co-pilot ejected uh, their seats, they went up out of the holes in the top of the airplane, and Maddox did not have an ejection seat. He was sitting on a regular seat, and uh, he was able to crawl up and try to crawl out of the plane, and and as the plane sort of turned over to fall apart, he was ejected out into the air, and his parachute went off, and he descended to Earth. We'll come back to Lieutenant Maddox a little bit later. It's a, an interesting story, but the plane is falling apart, one account I've read, and there are numerous accounts of this, and it, you have to do a little cross-editing. It, uh, it uh, turned almost upside down, and this is the biggest lane they've got. But the thing is, as it is falling apart, something happened that they had not planned for. They had lots of safeguards for the two atomic bombs that were in the back. That is, one man, could, for instance, could not drop them. You had to have two people to... to, to uh, activate the controls to drop the bombs. They were 3.9 megaton. Each one of them was 250 times as strong as the Hiroshima bomb. So you've got a lot of power there. And as we said earlier, it probably would have created a new uh, bay along the eastern coast of North Carolina and probably affected with radiation and so on things as far north as Washington and as far inland as Tennessee. And Lord knows, Goldsboro would not have been there anymore. So there we are, and the plane is falling apart in the night, uh, and uh, uh, four people have gotten out, and, and uh, Lieutenant Maddox got out. He descended to the earth, to earth, by the way, and uh, uh, even though his lines and his parachute, according to him, got tangled, he was very calm and worked it out and got him straightened out and was able to land safely, and he went over to a farmhouse uh, near where the plane had come down in, on a farm area, which is what, where the plane was over in northern Wayne County, near a town. or they, Actually, it isn't a town. It's a high spot in the road. I don't mean that either, but it, it's a place that's called Pharaoh. 
spelled F-A-R-O, and there's a historical marker there today and a spot where one of the bombs entered the earth that you can go and, and look at if you want to. That it would make it near the town of Eureka or uh, Fremont, Pikeville, about 10 miles north of Goldsboro. In other words, about 10 miles north of where little Tommy Kearney is sleeping, uh, as I said, the sleep of the virtuous. This is a bomb that could have blown uh, all this to, a, uh, to oblivion. Um, Lieutenant Maddox came down, and he went to the house. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to remember, it's 1961. And he went to the house, and it was a farmhouse. I guess it was a little after midnight. And he knocked on the door, and the people came to the door. And what you've got here in the southern part of the United States is a black man in an, in an Air Force uniform. I think what they thought he was, a spaceman or something like that. Or, uh, they were not really sure about the people in the house. But eventually they were. he convinced them that he was from the Air Force base, and they took him back. But at Seymour Johnson, they did not take him on base. They dumped him out or let him get out at the guardhouse, and the people at the guardhouse at Seymour Johnson thought he was a local person dressed up in an Air Force uniform who was, who was trying to get onto the base uh, illegally. Fortunately, uh, Major Tullock showed up eventually. He had uh, been able to get a ride back from the, the site, which is about, it's about 10 miles to where the main gate of Seymour Johnson is, and convinced the guard that he was the commander of the airplane, and this was one of his pilots, and they eventually the guards called the the uh, the, the, the guards called the uh, ambulance, and they took them to the base hospital. But uh, as I said, uh, Adam Maddox was passed away just a couple of years ago, and and this was uh, part of his early career. I think he was 27 years old, and he was the extra pilot. There were two regular pilots, and they had to have a third because they were doing so much flying time at one time. And so uh, the plane has disintegrated, and it has fallen to Earth. And as it did, it ejected the two bombs. They, they had provided for all kinds of uh, protection to keep the plane, the bombs uh, under control and making sure that they couldn't go off and that a person could not eject them, a single person could not go rogue and decide to drop them. But what they had not counted on was an airplane going falling to pieces, and the two two bombs fell uh, to earth at this point. And uh, the second hour, second half hour tonight, we're going to be talking about their fall to earth and how just how close we came to being blown to smithereens and the story of Goldsboro's broken era. And it happened on the night of January 23rd into the morning of January 24th, 1961. It means it was just 60 years ago. And uh, you can go there now. They check it for radiation because of one of the bombs, part of it stayed there. But we'll tell you that story a little bit later. Right now we need to check the news, find out what's going on in the world, and then we'll come back on WPTF Radio. Tom Kearney here, the Tom Kearney Show, every night, Monday through Friday from 9 to 10, live in real-time radio, and we try to present a, a uh, potpourri of programs. Uh, I'm inclined to say that if you don't like it one night, you might like it the next night, and we hope you would come to like it, all of it. Uh, we always have trivia when we can on Friday nights, and otherwise we try to bring you programs that are entertaining 
and uh, we hope educational. And maybe we'll be a little bit educational tonight about the history of an incident in uh, North Carolina history that uh, 60 years ago when uh, uh, disintegration of a B-52 bomber from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro over northern Wayne County, not very far from the base itself, as a matter of fact, uh, where the plane uh, fell apart in the air and uh, out from it slid two atomic bombs. One, uh, uh, the parachute opened. Uh, I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, but that's all right. And uh, it drifted to Earth. And the other one, the parachute did not open, and it it approached 700 miles per hour as it, it came to Earth and disintegrated. And part of it is still there now. And uh, well, that's what we're going to be talking about during uh, this half hour. Uh, Joel Dobson was on our program with us uh, several years ago who wrote Goldsboro's Broken Era. He's an Air Force veteran, not stationed at Seymour Johnson at the time this happened, but later uh, he wrote, uh, he'd heard the story so often of the Goldsboro's Broken Era that he researched and wrote the story, and he was lived in Greensboro. And he said that there were four things that the, the Air Force said about uh, the disintegration uh, of the, the B-52 in a press release, and that is one that there uh, there were two bombs on the plane. They were unarmed. Both had been recovered, and there was absolutely no chance of, of any any problem. And as he said, there were only these these four statements. Only one of them is true. There were two bombs. Uh, they were. It turns out. Just about armed, they uh, had uh, well, they had both been recovered, but uh, only partially in one case, and uh, there was a kind of unknown danger. Uh, and we're going to tell you about uh, the man who disarmed the bombs, Jack Ravel, in just a moment. So what we've got now is uh, B-52 uh, in pieces all over, everywhere, fires, and uh, two bombs which had. Uh, come to Earth, and uh, when uh, the appropriate officials from Seymour Johnson uh, checked the situation out, they reported to the the people further up the line in the Air Force, and they uh, sent to Wright Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, for the bomb uh, recovery group. Uh, Jack Ravel was the leader of it. He was, I think, a, uh, a lieutenant at the time. He had a crew of about 10 who specialized in in that sort of thing but that night he was he was told to get his mess so to speak that's my word to get to to Seymour Johnson as quick as possible and I remember in the interview we had with him he said that it was an unusual case in that he was told that a plane would be waiting to take him his men would follow the next day down to uh, to Wayne County to Goldsboro to Seymour Johnson and see what he could do and when he got on the plane that was to fly him, just him, to North Carolina, the pilot said, you must be important to Jack uh, because this is the first time I've ever been cleared to take off before I got on the airplane. And they were obviously in a hurry to get somebody there to see what could be done. And so Jack came to North Carolina and supervised the uh, uh, the, the dealing with the, the two bombs that had drifted down to Earth and at this point had not exploded. By the way, they, spoiler alert, they will not explode, but it will be thought that it was, that they came pretty close to exploding. 
one of the bombs that had slid out of the plane as it fell apart because it was just no longer uh, a serviceable structure, the plane was, uh, fell to earth. And as I said earlier, the parachute opened and it caught itself in a tree. And I believe the nose of it just barely was stuck into the earth. Uh, it was easily to disarm, according to Mr. Ravel, uh, although they discovered that and when you read stories of this, the number of switches, the number of things that had to go in line for it to to explode varies. One cannot really get a straight story. Uh, but uh, we're going to say that there were four switches uh, that had to, to, to click into motion uh, and to arm the bomb so it would explode probably not when it hit the earth, but above the earth, which is what the, the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima did. They were exploded because they would have more effect if they were a little bit higher off the ground. But this bomb, uh, three of the four switches that would have had to be thrown for it to be armed were not armed, and the one switch that was the arm of safe, if it was in safe, it was not armed, and if it was, it had the letters, they have a picture of it in the, the stories about this uh, S or A, if it was had an S, uh, it had not been clicked into position, and it was safe. If it had an A, it was armed, and it might have exploded. Well, it it did not completely arm itself. It only 75% armed itself. So we came close there. The other bomb, the air parachute, did not open, and it fell to earth and fell apart uh, when it hit the earth and plowed itself into the earth. And uh, the uh, uh, bomb dismantling crew and Jack Revell had to dig into the earth. One of the things that makes the story excruciating is uh, to to know that that part of Wayne County is a virtual swamp. After it, it has a very high water table, and uh, there are a lot of places in in that part of the world that are called things with names like uh, well, there's a place called uh, it being my native country. Uh, a bunk swamp, swamp, this swamp, this kind of swamp, that kind of swamp, and, and the, it's a serviceable farm farming ground, uh, but uh, you don't have to go very far down to find water, and that's what had happened to the bomb that uh, disintegrated and fell into the earth. They were able to dig out part of it. Uh, the the explosion, I think, of that bomb, of the two bombs. Uh, like uh, most of the, the bombs uh, of the atomic nature, require the bringing together of two masses so that you, one has a critical mass. And this bomb had not had that, and, and Jack Revell and his crew were able to uh, remove at least part of uh, the the arming uh, plutonium that would have caused the bomb to go off. Now, again, I'm not an expert on this, but he they were able to bring it out, but they had to dig and dig and dig because the thing had plowed itself into Earth. And the truth is, is that part of the bomb is there today at about 180 feet down. They tried to dig it out, but the water was coming in as fast as the very best uh, uh, digging crews and cranes and whatever could could be had were not able to, to outrun the water. Uh, Jack Ravel said that uh, the day that he remembered... Uh, for most of his life was uh, one of his sergeants calling up saying that they had found the arming mechanism and Jack said to what he said to the sergeant was that's good and the sergeant said no that's not good because 
it, it says the thing is armed. Well, it had not gone off, and so however armed it may have, may have been, it did not successfully explode, but apparently it came very close to that. And uh, after digging for about six months, as a matter of fact, uh, trying to manage the water coming in and to try to find the uh, uh, material, the atomic material that would be a part of the bomb, the part that they did not get, they gave up, uh, covered it over, bought a, uh, uh, the army bought the use of the land from the farmers and uh, made it off limits for the planting of crops. I'm not sure if that still applies, but they were also going to go once or twice a year and measure the uh, the uh, output of radium and, and other materials from the uranium that was in it, and uh, they have continued apparently to do that. I think the University of North Carolina has, has a part in that too. And there have been no problems, and the farmers there have planted all around that area and continue to grow good crops. But uh, that's... Uh, uh, where they ended up with being with with the, the bomb dismantling crew and Jack Revell is that they were able to disarm one and take it to Seymour Johnson. The other one disintegrated, and they picked up some of the pieces, some of the material, the atomic material, but a lot of the atomic material was left in the earth, but it's not supposed to pose any particular danger because it is not going to uh, come in a, in a strategic way into contact with other uh, atomic material, the kind of thing that would cause the explosion. So there we came very close to having uh, the creation of what Jack Revelle called the Bay of Carolina uh, on the night of uh, January 23rd, the morning of January 24th in 1961. We've just had the 60th anniversary. What about what about uh, the uh, the, the, the history of this uh, in terms of dealing with the, the population. We're going to talk about that when we come back. We've already given you a hint with the the uh, press release of the four things that, uh, that Joel uh, Dobson reported, that there was uh, uh, a, uh, two bombs on the, the airplane uh, that uh, they had, uh, were, they were unarmed, both had been recovered, and there was absolutely no danger. And as Dobson says, it turns out that uh, in the end, that they, there were only three of these that were true. But it would be a long time, and that's the kind of thing, as, a, as one who was personally you know, out there, uh, I was just a regular citizen, but uh, they lied to us is what I'm up try, trying to say. And we'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. If you want to join us, if you have any questions about what I've said, I've told you most of what I know, but it certainly did happen. And it uh, was, a, was a part of, uh, of the book uh, by uh, Eric Schlosser called Command and Control. And, in fact, one of the ways that I was aware of it after all the years, I did not lay awake nights after uh, 1961 thinking about it, and probably most of the citizens who were near there did not either. But in, 19, uh, in 2013, Schlosser published his book, and he'd been able to get some uh, information that had been kept secret uh, in, in back in 1961, and this was 2013. And basically, what it, what it said is that there was a real danger, there had been a real danger, and that uh, the the people had lied. In fact, his whole book it's a book not just about Goldsboro, but about some uh, 800 to 1,000 incidents of near nuclear disaster uh, 
missile silo in, in Arkansas and uh, bombs that were dropped off the coast of Spain and off the coast of Georgia and other incidents that uh, were near catastrophes but were not catastrophes. And his story is how close we've come and uh, and how, how uh, lucky, in fact, we were. But we're going to come back and talk about that right after this. 950 at WPTF AM 680 and 98.5. Be sure to set a button on both of your lines on your car radio for WPTF. Tom Kearney here and the Tom Kearney Show. And a little personal reminiscence tonight, uh, a little collection of history about an incident uh, that happened uh, in my hometown. Well, it didn't happen in the town, it happened out in the county, but it was the the disintegration of a B-52 bomber with two atomic warhead-type bombs on it, uh, lots of firepower, 500 times when they were added together, the power of the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. And the part I've gotten to now is the part where we were uh, lied to about what happened. Uh, I re- remembered when thinking about this that... Uh, that we had an assembly in my high school. We had assemblies usually once a week or something. I think this one was held to have some sort of other program, but they, uh, the, the officials, the principal and the teachers, had, they had somebody had recorded a from Radio Moscow, some ham operator, a uh, report uh, uh, on the American nuclear catastrophe. And one of the things, of course, was the Russians were claiming that they weren't a threat uh, for nuclear weapons, and the Americans were claiming they were not a threat. And, uh, and but it seemed like uh, Radio Moscow thought the Soviet Union had uh, had some cards to play now because they said that this uh, bombs had fallen in, out of the airplane and, and descended to Earth, and uh, the American populace was up in arms. The citizens of Goldsboro were rioting in the streets, which of course was not true. Like myself. We really quite didn't quite know what to make of this because we we were not told a lot of things, and what we had been told was that everything was was hunky dory, was safe. One of the reasons I got interested in again this again was uh, in when uh, Eric Schlosser's book came out. He had gotten access to uh, materials and studies and things from people uh, dealing with the nuclear problems and the problems of the bombs and so on, which in fact said that they were, they were a danger and and that we were really lucky that things didn't go otherwise. And uh, as a matter of fact, my good friend and fellow Goldsborian, Johnny Hood, who was the farm director of WPTF, uh, was the one who reawakened my interest because he said he had been somewhere and somebody asked him, uh, was he blown up in 1961. It was somebody had read the Manchester Guardian, the British newspaper, which had a story about uh, Saucer's book and the, the, the near-nuclear disaster near Goldsboro. And for a while, if you were from Goldsboro, people would ask you, you know, where were you? Or were you alive then? And that, that sort of thing. And what we ultimately discovered from the papers that were released uh, with the Freedom of Information Act was that... Uh, from the studies that had been made by the people at the Sandia Corporation, one of the, the companies that manufactured the bombs, uh, 
I think he, in, in one time, if you had looked for the address of the Sandia Corporation, you would have found out it was Los Alamos, New Mexico, which gives you a hint of what kind of stuff they were into, and to uh, and and that uh, uh, the uh, the uh, the bomb was not trustworthy, and it should not be continued to be used until some modifications had taken place. In fact, the guy uh, who had written the study had compared the situation to the kind of situation that would, would have been produced in the movie Dr. Strangelove if uh, the bomb bombers who had been sent to attack the Russians because uh, the uh, leader of the Air Force base there had become wary of his precious bodily essence uh, had uh, not been recalled. And of course, you know, they were recalled, but one of them made it, and the Russians, the Soviet Union, had, according to the conversations in the war room, a doomsday machine. And so once one blow was struck, another blow would be struck by the other, strike, stroken, struck, struck by the other side. And so that was much in the air then. The movie Dr. Strangelove uh, came out in 1964. And uh, the incidents that I'm relating to you happened in 1961. There were people who were wary, thought that we should be wary of going what was going on and uh, what we have discovered, what a citizen like myself has discovered in, 19, in 2013 when the, the uh, book by Eric Slosser came out, Command and Control, is that we were, in fact, not told the truth and that that, that weapon was much more dangerous. It was not the only case Oh, but it was one of the more obvious. There were, I think, at least four or five other cases where bombs were accidentally dropped. I think there was a case in South Carolina where a bomb fell out of a bomb a bomb opening, and uh, actually the the uh, normal uh, explosives that were to set it off exploded, but the bomb did not explode. And there were numbers of cases. They dropped one by accident off the coast of Georgia and by accident off the coast of Spain. So it is an interesting story. Again, as we have run out of time, I just want to commemorate the anniversary of, of my survival and all the people in, in my part of the world and uh, the avoidance, by luck, if nothing else, of, of a great catastrophe. Uh, it happened uh, January 23rd, 24th, in the year 1961, 60 years ago. The, the two books are Joel Dobson, Goldsboro's Broken Arrow, and Eric Schlosser, Command Control. Uh, tomorrow night, my brother Stephen will be our guest, and we're going to talk about the entertainment industry, particularly movies, movie houses, and the films that have been released this year, and what kind of uh, award ceremonies are going to be taking place. So we'll get a little bit of an entertainment report. That's tomorrow night here on WPTF.